0: Hey, we're so excited you decided to join us on today at our Shades and Justice podcast with Dr. Evelyn Heal. We're so excited you decided to stop by. Hey, check us out on our website, www.drevelynhill.net. Welcome to Shades and Justice podcast with yours truly, Dr. Evelyn Keel. We are so excited to have Mr. Max Mendoza with Heartland 180 with us on this morning. He has been an advocate for our kids here in the community for years, uh, has a history of positive work uh, with the juvenile justice systems and has moved on to uh find appointments with the governor and um just real excited to have him on our uh podcast. So your story uh in the past of how you became involved with Heartland one eighty and kind of a little bit about uh your childhood that kind of helped you get to where you are today.
1: Yeah. Um well I uh I am a native of the Kansas City Metro, so I've been on both sides of the state line. Um, I grew up um, both in, you know, here in KCK and Kansas City, Missouri, um, and spent a lot of time on the west side in Kansas City, Missouri. That's pretty much where I'm from, where my family's from, and um, I grew up on the um, on the west side, so I, a lot of them... Uh, involvement with gang and you know street life and drug activities and found myself involved um you know in criminal activities at a young age so um you know of course with all those influences i found myself in trouble with the system um and went into the system when i was 16 years old Uh, i spent five years um, three years in the juvenile system and then right into the adult system no break um Unfortunately, uh, they were waiting for me at the gate. It was just boom, boom, boom. Um, But, you know, this is a weird thing to say, but being incarcerated was probably the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, In the course of me being incarcerated, I got my education. I got my high school diploma, which, um, you know, most people end up with GEDs. I was able to start my college education um, and really found my calling in life and that was working with other young men um, like myself. Um, So I got out, continued my education and uh, volunteered every chance I could get to work with young men and women to show them that just because you guys make a mistake doesn't mean you are a mistake. And who better to be working with those youth than someone who is just like those youth, You know, someone who has been there, has gone through the struggles um, and worked to turn their life around And I've just been blessed that amazing people have been brought in on my path along that journey, uh, which was able to lead me to being appointed to the um, Kansas Advisory Group on Juvenile Justice and Delinquency Prevention, and working with the juvenile justice, our the JJA at the time, Juvenile Justice Authority, which is now KDOC, Kansas Department of Corrections. Um, but in the course of doing, uh, being on that advisory group and working with those that department, I got to meet some people who introduced me to a man named Jonas Hayes, who had started the 180 program um, in Greensville, Mississippi, called the Delta 180, but was familiar with 180, with work he did in California. And we got together and started Heartland 180. And I've been uh, working with youth ever since. I think this is going to be our sixth year of... Um, of existence and uh, it's been great because you know when we're working with these youth we I really try to find adults who are relatable to these youth and that's one of the biggest thing is being relatable and being able to build relationships because if you just come in here trying to dictate to these youth or tell these youth about what they're doing wrong or what they need to be doing you're gonna lose them you know we do we do cognitive behavioral therapy and social emotional learning, but that's not the business we're in. We're in the business of building relationships because when you're able to build relationships, walls come down and people become receptive to what it is that you're trying to bring to the table.
0: Mm -hmm. Max, thanks so much for sharing that. I I really appreciate you being so transparent about your history. And uh, of course, um, I met you probably years ago or five years ago and uh one of the things i really like about you is you are not the traditional um persona that uh one might think uh you would be being with uh, heartland 180 and i still appreciate that i think the kids admire you just at first sight because uh Number one, I've seen you come to do Heartland 180 on your on your motor. Scene. Uh, some of your team members come in and they may have purple hair. So I mean, it's just so cool that uh, you and your team are able to relate to these kids and love. One of the things we hear a little the term the school to prison pipeline. And while I was on the board of education, I just hated hearing about that. The kids would be suspended for weeks and months at a time. And then the next thing you know, they're, they're in jail. So tell me a little bit about uh, that whole process and then what can we do to improve? How has Heartland 180 helped in that particular uh, scenario with uh, school to prison pipeline?
1: I think one of the ways we affect that within our agency is with um, social emotional learning. You know, when you're starting to work on those character development skills and giving them the ability to make decisions, um, to make good decisions, Um, and when you're working on things like developing their self-worth and their self-awareness, they're going to make better decisions and less destructive decisions. I think that's really important um, that our youth learn those kind of skills because it's going to, they're going to use it from the day they learn it for the rest of their life. Um, one of the big things is, especially with um, those interpersonal relationship skills and conflict resolution. When they know how to effectively deal with conflict, you have less the less likelihood of them finding themselves in fights in schools or um, you know arguments with teachers. Uh, I think it's really important for those skills to be taught with youth. And the other thing is that youth have a tendency to mimic what they see. And so if all they've seen is combative um, tendencies, arguing, then they're going to think that that's the way you handle conflict. And so, you know, that's one of my biggest Mm -hmm. things is when when you start talking about like juvenile justice and working with youth and people throw around the term rehabilitation. I do not like that word. Because when you say to rehabilitate, you're assuming they've been habilitated in the first place, that they have the knowledge and skills to be able to function in society. But if they've never been given those tools and those skills in the first place, how can you expect them to be able to function, to be able to interact with one another and how to appropriately deal with um, conflict and to understand their emotions, emotional intelligence plays a big part in it as well. And so if they're never taught this, then you, you can't expect a certain behavior on you. So I think social emotional learning is very, very important. Um, and so that's what we do with our youth. Uh, we work on those skills and give them those tools and techniques. And it was great because I just got our executive report back a couple months ago from our last session we did. And even with all the craziness going on and, you know, program coming to an end, we still was able to pull some data points. And some of our data points we look at are, you know, of course, their GPAs and their attendance, but those documented disciplinary incidences. And those are when they get those write-ups, detentions, you know, all those infractions that get documented in school. We saw an 80% reduction in documented mm-hmm. disciplinary incidences with, the, with our youth. And so that just shows the power of when you give them the tools to know how to deal with those situations that get them in trouble. Um, they find themselves not, you know, find themselves getting in trouble less. And you know, that's, I think that's the important thing is when you start working on those behaviors, making sure that they're going to school every day, making sure that they know how to um, navigate the environment that they're in. But once you get those two things under control, then you see more success, increasing grades, And that's, you know, you have to work at, you know, work on those steps. You have to give them those tools to be able to function. Um, So I think that's a great way that we're able to affect youth finding themselves, uh, you know, in trouble in schools and, you know, going into that school to prison pipeline. Um, The school to prison pipeline is definitely one of the subjects that I'm very passionate about. Um, And, you know, there's several ways that they can be impacted But that's how Heartland 180, uh, and particularly impacts school to prison pipeline.
0: Well, congratulations on the 80% difference. Uh, Those are staggering, wonderful results. And so it sounds like to me, across the country, in every middle school and high school, we need to have a Max Mendoza and a Heartland (laughs) 180. That's the way it sounds to me.
1: I would love that.
0: (laughs) And we really could begin to see some positive behaviors and some test scores improve and uh, classroom activities improve because we would have done that uh, social and emotional behavior uh, learning process, which is exactly what our kids need. And a lot of times we blame the kids. And sometimes it's uh, it, it's not just the kids, it's our systems that we have in place that may be absolutely hindering the kids' process. So out of most of the kids that you have served, would one assume that most of the kids are in the foster care system or are most of the kids just at home with their own parents and just unable to... Uh, make positive decisions at home, maybe because the parents need that socially and emotional training. What what's your uh, view of that?
1: Well, I'll tell you, we definitely see a a mixture of the population. Um, we definitely get um, sync, which are child in need of care kiddos. Um, we get system involved youth. This might be youth who's in trouble, maybe on truancy or might have you know caught an offense. Um, but we also get a lot of self-referrals from parents and from schools. Uh, so it, it's really a broad spectrum. But what I can tell you is the narrowing it down is all these kids lack those skills. Um, and, you know, when you teach those skills, it affects three major areas. You know, self-awareness, self-development, and social responsibility. And so when you're able to give them those tools, you know, you develop their self-awareness and their self-respect and self-value. When you value yourself, then you're going to make better choices because you know that you're worth more. Um, That self-awareness, when you are aware of who you are, you know, learning your emotions, understanding your emotions, you know, when you get that better knowing of who you are, then you're going to work on your self-development to make yourself better. Um, and we see a lot of kiddos lacking those skills. Mm -hmm. Um, unfortunately we see it more so with kiddos that are coming through from the child in need of care system, because a lot of times those skills uh, are learned from your family and your environment. Like I said, you know, kids learn what they, 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 they they act by what they see.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: So their environment plays a lot in that. Um, And, you know, you get those exceptions. Obviously, I'm an exception. (laughs) But, um, you know, if we want our kids to truly be successful, we should be teaching these skills to all of them. And unfortunately, those kiddos as a child in need of care system don't have that environment because a lot of these kiddos are bouncing around from placement to placement. um, And they lack that stable person in their life. Uh, So we definitely Mm -hmm. see see it a lot in those kiddos. And then, you know, we see it... And a good amount of our system-involved youth as well, um, and you know, I think it it all goes back to that environment that they're coming from. You know, if these mm-hmm. if these lessons aren't being taught in the home, then you know they're not going to carry it with them. And the other thing that I think is important that we do within our agency is that not only are we teaching the social-emotional learning to our youth, but we're working with the parents and the family as well. Because mm-hmm. if you give them these skills, Yes, they have a better chance of being successful, but if it's being reinforced in the home, then you know that that reinforcements there, it's being it's being repeated, it's being carried through and followed through, which leads to an even greater amount of success. So that's why we try to do things uh, that involves parent engagement and family engagement. Um, mm-hmm. One of the things that we do for that is our Strengthen and Family Program 10 to 14. Where, you know we're bringing in the whole family and working with them as a whole to reinforce these topics to give parents skills and tools um you know to and sh- to give them the tools they need to be successful because if we're only working with the kids we're putting a bandage on a wound that won't kill
0: yeah well max this is absolutely phenomenal information so max how successful have you been by bringing the families and do parents actually attend your classes. Um, I know when we were um, on the Board of Education, one of the constant challenges we had were getting the parents to support the kids by coming out to the schools for different events, or even just being there for Advocacy Day, or Mm -hmm. even just parent-teacher conference. We just did not see a whole lot of parents come. So uh, how successful has your program
1: been with parents actually showing up? So in the beginning, it was very difficult, Um, but we started incentivizing coming to the program. Mm -hmm. And that started drawing more parents in. And if you give them an incentive to show up and they come and then they kind of hear what's going on, then we kind of hook them and they're like, well, this is great. Um, I had a family, this family will stick with me forever, but they worked with us and it was first, um, it was a boy and four girls in this family. So we had the boy first and they came in. And that family, you know, was real iffy at first. And we were like, well, you come in and we'll provide you dinner that evening. You don't have to cook. The whole family comes in and has dinner together. You have an opportunity to win. And so we would do a drawing out of a hat. And so whatever family's name got drawn was given like a grocery card or a Walmart card or, you know, some sort of incentive to have them come. And I will tell you, those parents sat through the program, finished the program, enjoyed the program, started using the techniques in the home, and they said, this is working. And the next thing I knew, I ended up having all four of them kids in my program. <laughs> so everyone, every year, a new a new kiddo was coming into my program with that family. And we worked with that family for probably, I think, four years. Um, oh, that is awesome.
0: I like to put my name in the hat. I would love to <laughs> be uh, a part of your incentive program where I get groceries and uh, <laughs> that would be wonderful. However, uh, I know I can't do that. My kids are <laughs> all grown and gone, amen, thank you, Jesus. But uh, I'm so excited about your program and figuring out a way to make it work. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so uh, you, that was an innovative incentive program that worked. And so it needs to be duplicated around the country so that we can really get families involved to work with their children. Uh, so thank you for doing that. So, um, Max, what are the three, uh, most popular reasons that kids end up in juvenile detention?
1: Well, I think from what I've seen, a lot of them who end up in there end up in there for crimes that are like, crimes against another person um so unfortunately we see a lot of crimes that are um you know could be gang related or drug related um you know there is a lot of uh crimes against property so vandalism um could be anything from like stolen goods Uh, i don't get too deep on what these kids charges are i just you know kind of get a general idea of you know, what they're involved in. But those are the things I kind of see the most are those. Luckily, since the uh, juvenile justice reform bill went into law, um, we -hmm. are not locking kids up as much as we used to. And one of the biggest things is that kids that get put into detention are the kids who are truly a danger to themselves and those around them. Mm -hmm. And so we're seeing more kids being incarcerated for, for for the more intense crimes. And those for the smaller crimes are being, you know, either um, given ticketed for, or given a court appearance instead of being put into a detention, mm-hmm. um, which to me, it makes more sense because you don't want to put um, a lower level offender in with higher level offenders. Right. Uh, okay. Not only that, but just the act of being detained itself can cause... A lot of trauma. It can be a very yeah, traumatic yeah. experience, and yeah, so one yeah. of the things is we want to limit the amount of trauma our youth, you know, experience. Um, and so we really want to make sure that those youth that are being detained or the youth that are need to be detained, you know, at one point before the the Juvenile Justice Reform Bill, um, our maximum juvenile correctional facility for the state. The majority of the youth that were in there were in there for um, low-level offenses, minor offenses. Um, you know, these were youth that, uh, if they were adults, would have been given a ticket or a fine for. They wouldn't have been incarcerated. And when you start looking at the cost of incarceration at about you know $263 a day to incarcerate a youth, and 60% of your youth that are incarcerated. Um, wouldn't be incarcerated if they were adults, well, that's a lot of money that we're throwing down a drain.
0: Wow, yes. Wow, that's something to think about. I never thought about that. Um, so I, just because I don't know, forgive me for my ignorance, <laughs> when kids are detained, they, is, are there families responsible for bail or anything, or is the bail system not included with juveniles?
1: So there is not a bail in, with juveniles, but the process for a juvenile when they come in contact with law is a lot different than an adult. So what happens is when it, if there is a juvenile who comes into contact with law enforcement, um, the officer you know, pretty much will bring them to what's called JIAC, a juvenile assessment and intake center. They go through JIAC and GIAC does an assessment on them. Um, and through the assessment, they take into consideration the offense, why they were brought in, what's going on with this youth. And through that assessment, they determine whether or not this youth should be held and sent into detention, or if this youth uh, returns back to their family or where the youth needs to go. And so that juvenile intake and assessment is really that buffer on deciding what should happen with these kiddos, and as they're in there, they can also receive do um, that assessment. They look at the needs of the youth, um, make referrals of services. Uh, so if a youth comes through Jiac and it finds out that you know this is a low-level youth, we're just going to write them a ticket for an appearance to show to court. Here's a re- list of so- resources. You know, Heartland One Eighty could be one of those resources on that list. You should go check them out, and, you know. And so I love the ideas of Jiac. Um, and when this new facility opens up, I don't know if you know, but we are getting a new juvenile justice center. Yes, um, yes, our yeah. current Jiac right now is pretty much just like a closet. It is a small space made up of maybe two rooms. And so, um, and it's amazing the how well our Jiac workers operate in. The resources that they're given because they're not given a lot and yet they do an amazing job working with these kiddos because you have kiddos who may not even that don't always end up being juvenile offenders that are coming in you know you have some kiddos that are there on like police protective custody um you know and you've had staff workers in there with with a baby in the office that they're trying to take care of a baby and then also work with these other kids and you know for them to be able to juggle all of that in there Um, they truly amaze me at how well they've been able to work with the resources that they have. So I'll be really excited for them to move into that new space once it opens.
0: Wow. Thank you, uh, Max, for that information. Um, uh, What can the community, the city, or state systems do differently to really make a positive difference with these youth?
1: Well, I will tell you, first off, I want to hit the school systems. This is going to be really important to me. I think within our schools, we need to start, um, here in our school district, we've already started enacting social emotional learning, which is extremely important. And they brought in social workers into the school, which I think is great. But one of the things that we're lacking on is restorative justice practices. Mm -hmm. And bringing that restorative justice within our schools, Uh I think is really important. Um, I think we need to stop using things like out-of-school suspension.
0: Yes, yes,
1: um, yes, You know, because that's not fixing the problem. That's just sending it away. And so, you know, we right. really need to focus on not so much what they have done, but why they are doing it and deal with uh-huh. the brute behavior of the issues instead of being punitive. Yes, yes. So I agree. I've
0: been, in, I've been in a couple of conversations um, around restorative justice, and uh, so I am going to do a little more research on it. And but I'm, I'm totally in agreement with you. And um, Max, just, just for my information, um, you know. I'll, A lot of people look at our uh, juveniles as drug addicts and alcoholics and all that. And we know that if they're involved in those type of activities, that's just a symptom. It's not the root of the child's or the individual's problem. So how can we do a better job even with that?
1: So that's a great question. And one of the things that, um, I'm, I'm just glad you said it, that that's a, a symptom. Drug yes. abuse, substance abuse is a coping mechanism. It is a way for these young people to deal with whatever's going on in their lives. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at it at that lens, I think it's important for us to start normalizing mental health. There is such a stigma around the word mental health. Yeah, I think. <clears throat> People, um, they don't take it seriously.
0: Yeah, you know, mm-hmm.
1: substance abuse—you find substance abuse a lot, um, you know, with people who might be struggling mentally, you know, with their mental health. Um, right. And so, I think normalizing mental health and making sure that those resources are available, and letting people understand that it's okay to get help for mental health is yes. going to be really important because. One of the things is for our teens, we see this a lot with our teens and substance abuse is that they're trying to forget or they're trying to numb something in their life. Right. And that's a time right. of their life that's full of confusion and change and transition that yes. they are trying to find out who they are in the world. Mm-hmm. And so I think, you know, if we provide the services and normalize the services so that, you know, something like mental health isn't taboo, right. um, you know, Going, Getting help for mental health should be as normal as going to the doctor for checkup.
0: Right. That's good. That's really good. And of course, uh, a lot of times in urban communities, people don't go to the doctor for checkup. <laughs> But that's okay. That's a whole nother topic. Yeah. The day. But Max, we have certainly appreciated your input on today. We have a couple of minutes. If you would like to share uh, just uh, anything about uh, your passion or uh, organization um, that uh, the community might tap into to how to get in touch with you and how they can volunteer Um, just uh, you got two minutes to give that information okay
1: um well I'm gonna throw this out there Um, so you can visit us at our website heartland180.org you can definitely reach us uh, if you look us on the web you can google you know Heartland 180 or the H180 program KC Uh, could be a great way to you know to get our contact information um, Or you could just find us at our building once our building opens up. But we're located at 500 North 7th Street um, in Kansas City, Kansas. But real quick before we go, there's one more topic that I just wanted to throw out here to make sure that people are aware of that's going on. And that is the Evidence-Based Program Fund. And so what the Evidence-Based Program Fund is, is that, you know, how I was talking about those youth and that money that we were spending, So when the criminal justice reform bill came into law, all that money we were spending on locking these kids up was put in a lockbox and for us to use across the state to provide evidence-based programming for our system-involved youth. Right now, currently, the governor's budget wants to sweep that money out of that lockbox. And so we need those monies. Those monies Mm -hmm. is how we provide services for our youth in our communities. If we're not locking these kids up, the whole idea was that instead of locking kids up, we keep them in their communities, we keep them in, them, in their homes, and we provide the services that we need in their home communities. And if these monies are taken, if, legislator, if the legislators take this money and move it in other places, then we lose the resources to be able to effectively provide the services that our youth need across the state. So one of the things I ask people to do is be very mindful, watch these kind of things and voice your opinion to our legislators and to the governor's office about how important um, things like the evidence-based program fund is for our youth in the state of Kansas, but not only in the state of Kansas and our community here in Wyandotte County, because there's a lot of that money that our juvenile justice system is using right now to help provide services for our youth youth.
0: Okay. Well, thank you, Mr.